the finest expression of grit is walking into objections, actively asking questions to find who's not into this and why. Hi, I'm Jubin, business development and go-to-market operating partner at Kleiner Perkins, and I'm really excited to bring you this episode of Go-to-Market Grit, a show that interviews amazingly successful sales and go-to-market leaders and explores how they operate, think, and deploy grit every day in order to build world-class teams. And now, on to this episode. Jim, welcome to the show. Thank you, sir. I like to start these things off by reading my guest's background back to them, and then you can fill in the blanks for me. You got your degree from Dartmouth. You then went on to be a project manager at the National Computer Board in Singapore for two years. And then you became the director of APAC Business Development at AboveNet Communications for about a year and a half. I think then you came to Silicon Valley, became the VP of Sales at Email Labs, then the VP of Sales and GM at Lyris for about a year and a half. About eight years later, it was actually acquired by Aurea. Then you went on in 2007 to be the EVP of Worldwide Sales at Box. Maybe that wasn't your title when you first started, but in 2007, you went on to Box. You spent seven years there through their IPO, and then you went on to become the chief revenue officer. Well, you were first the advisor and then chief revenue officer at Infer, which you spent two years at. And then you did consulting, overlapping some of these experiences for the last five years. And currently you are the B2B general manager at Calm, the meditation app, and you have been there for eight or nine months. That is generally directionally accurate. I'll give you a couple of, of tuning points. Uh, interestingly, the title that I started at or started with at Box was Enterprise General Manager and VP of Sales. And it indicates something similar in that it was a new thing in an existing company. And I came in to help pay attention to strategy planning and execution across all dimensions of go-to-market. And that's sort of what I'm doing right now with Calm. The other thing I'll say is that my sales career started actually before the National Computer Board of Singapore. It was actually with MCI Telecommunications in New York City and got my sales training actually at a pretty big company that was AT&T's main competitor. And it was a super professional organization. And I wore a suit and a tie every day and carried a coach briefcase and wore wingtips. So I <laughs> went into Manhattan every morning. You don't seem too proud of that now. Well, it, it seems ridiculous now because those <laughs> shoes were actually quite uncomfortable. I remember wingtips never, ever being comfortable. So, Well, we've come full circle. You can just be in short sweats or underwear these days and it doesn't matter. So, Absolutely. All you see is from the shoulders up on Zoom. <laughs> exactly. So. <laughs> exactly. And you know what? I look good every day. So I'm all set. <laughs> well, it's a pleasure to have you. I will save some of the superlatives because I know you're a humble guy and you won't like me reading it back to you. But here's a couple. One, you've been named top five SaaS startup VP of sales by Brendan Cassidy, who was also himself probably one of the greatest VP of sales. That was quite the illustrious list. You took box from very, very little revenue just going in from consumer to enterprise to IPO. Even in Brendan's top five VP of sales list, he says, look, if you can get Jim, get him right now. He's kind of having a good time, but good luck. He's one of the best of the best. And so we are really lucky to have you. And I think the audience is really going to like this one. Appreciate your kind words. Thank you. Of course. In the context of what I want to talk about today, there's a few things. The first is obviously your background in history at Box. I think I really want to get into that. 
I'd love to hear a little bit more about what you're doing at Calm. And then the third is unicorn meat. And I'll explain what unicorn meat means to the audience. So we got introduced through one of our partners at Kleiner, Mamoun Hamid, who I think did the series B at Box when he was at US Venture Partners right around the time when you were joining in 2007-ish. Is that right? Yeah, I joined right after A-Round Financing and Josh Stein was the lead partner. Mamoon followed him with the B-Round investment. And that was when we really didn't have much product for the business buyer yet. Box pivoted from a consumer play to a business slash enterprise play. And they hired me to help broker that transition. One thing I'll say is I give a lot of credit to the founders of Box for being able to come to grips with just the radicalness of that transition for Box. It was a big change. And with super young founders, for them to have the foresight and the ability to rock that and come to grips with like, oh, this is going to have to be very different than how it was started. Got a lot of respect for that. At the time when you and Mamoon came on board, it was not the box that it is today. It was, I think, a little bit more unclear. I asked Mamoon for some prep, like, hey, give me some prep on what I should ask Jim. What can I stump him on? And he said, just ask him what open for business means. And that's all he gave me. So anyway, I've had to go through the archives and there's a couple of quotes that I pulled. No thanks to Mamoon for not helping me here. He said, look, I was one of the only few folks on Sand Hill to actually raise my hand at the time because there was another 40, 50 competitors that looked and felt very similar to Box at the time. And at the time it was a consumer business. He also, in his memo, again, this didn't come from him. It could have been easier if it did. He said, I like Aaron Levy, terrific acumen and a great sense of product. That was his memo. Did you get that same sense back in the early days? What was it that you thought, you know what, this might be it? Yeah, sure. What I sensed was I was going to end up, I thought, being a very good compliment to Aaron. Aaron's sensibilities were very much focused on the end user and that experience and the design and product inclinations. That product experience for the end users is the foundation of what we were selling to companies, obviously. But I came in and was able to add a layer of experience with the buyers who have different considerations and different value propositions or needs than the end users themselves. So I was able to add that as a complement to what Aaron had. And I think the dual focus that we had together was very strong. And we were able to build for the buyer with admin console, security, integratability, things like that. But Aaron stayed doggedly focused on simplifying and making sure it stays easy for the end user. That worked. How much did he empower you at the time to say, look, this is your thing, go do it? I would say I had a lot of autonomy. I would say that everything about how I approach building companies is super duper collaborative. It's not about autonomy. It's about there's not a lot of hierarchy. We're aligning on what signals we're reading, what signals we're going to act on, and mutually agreeing on that stuff on a very regular basis. So it was not like I was off on my own doing my own thing. It was a hyper collaborative thing. And the stakes were high. Folks like Mamoon and the other investors you know, were putting money in when it wasn't abundantly clear that the business was going to take off like a rocket ship. And then it started to click in. The product for the administrator buyer did come to fruition. And then we were off to the races. And I will say this about the competition. 
from my perspective, as I reflect back on Box, the situation was unique because we actually did have a fairly clean competitive runway for a couple of years. And I was able through sales to initiate conversations with a lot of CIOs and a lot of senior buyers who had no business taking meetings with me because I didn't actually have a product for them yet. But I was able to gather insights from them about what they would pay for later. And we were able to build a product roadmap in those directions. But we didn't have Dropbox necessarily after us for the first couple of years. Google wasn't paying attention to Google Drive. Microsoft still was you know, stuck behind the firewall with what they had with SharePoint. So we had a two, three year period where we were kind of the only ones knocking on the door of the CIOs. We already had hundreds of enterprise class deals and we'd already been through the cycles to figure things out and to know how to go do that. And at that point, I was just gas pedal on investing in sales reps globally, you know, all the things we were doing with marketing. So I felt like we had a kind of a rare window to do things where we didn't have a ton of competition. When you started, how much revenue was Box doing and rough employee count, just to contextualize where things were when you got there? I believe I was the 14th hire and the revenue was somewhere in the six or 700,000 a year range. And that was from the consumer side of the business. Uh, there was a consultant that preceded me who had done a handful of deals to companies. And that was the signaling that they used to say, okay, we might have something, let's hire someone full-time. Okay, I'd be remiss if I did not ask you, what does open for business mean? When Mamoon introduced us, he reached out to Aaron Levy. Aaron and I got acquainted. They kept throwing around this three-letter acronym. Mamoon said, I'm OFB, you're OFB. I had no idea what that meant. <laughs> and so when I asked Mamoon, what does OFB mean? He said, open for business. And he said, that's the only question that I have to ask you on this show. There ended up being multiple interpretations of what it <laughs> meant. From my perspective, in jest, it was just like, you know, we're available all hours, all days. We're doing deals. We're hustling deals. One call crushes. There's a lot of motivation and energy there. Mamoon and some of his peers at back then US Venture Partners would come by on Friday afternoons and they would see us grinding away on Friday afternoons, like hustling deals. And I think that's where it actually came from. From that point on, for me, it really turned into sort of the myriad go-to-market motions that we were able to put in place to actually monetize this service that we had called Box. And it was freemium stuff. It was web trials unassisted. It was lightweight inside sales. It was hardcore enterprise sales. It was channel sales. It was overseas operations, which each market came with different elements of nuance. So it was just the diversity of how we were attacking the market with variable go-to-market motions. That, in my mind, is what OFB means. <laughs> I love it. Well, you left in 2014, again, just to contextualize the seven-year run that you had there, how much revenue approximately was Box doing? I believe it was a public company at that time. And how many employees? Yeah, the data is available. At the end of 13, I believe we closed out that year at $174.3 million of annual recurring revenue. I left in April of 2014, and I believe we had tacked on another 20, 25 million, something like that. So it was a tick under 200 million. And the S1 was ready to go at that point. The IPO actually happened 
a little bit less than a year later. So I wasn't actually employed by Box when the IPO happened. I had already left. Am I allowed to ask why you grinded it out for seven years, took the company from 600K to 200 million of, of ARR, and then one year before the IPO, you left? Yeah, look, I mean, on certain levels, there's a certain energy to be drawn from winning. And I really loved the team that I was able to hire and work with. And it's your baby. When you put so much of your soul and time and energy into something, you do want to see it through. I will say this, because I was there so early and lasted, relatively speaking, so long, your leadership style has to evolve. And the tactical things that I'm doing in a tightly knit collaborative group early are very different from the leadership things about motivation and inspiration that are required to like literally speak to a team of 600 people and get every last drop of energy and belief out of them that they could do it, that they could be successful. That evolution for me was fascinating because it was a personal journey of growth. But I reached the point where I felt that the organization, the sales team itself would benefit from a new voice of leadership. I found myself repeating similar concepts and themes again and again. And it was just one of these moments, an inflection moment, like, all right, it's ready to go. It's ready to go public. I think the team would benefit from a new voice of leadership. And it was actually a slow process of finding my successor. And I was very involved in finding my successor at Box. So I feel like it was a a well-executed transition yeah. for what it's worth. You just mentioned lasted so long. I think that was an interesting use of words because it is very different, as you said, from the early days to the late days. And often there is a characterization of sales leaders that they are very good at one specific area. And whether that might be motivating, whether that might be being in the trenches with their team, those are all from the outside looking in functional areas with specific sets of expertise for specific sets of people who do those things. And so again, I'm not sure I believe that. And maybe there aren't very many success stories to support my belief, but you're one of them. And when you go from 600K to 200 million of revenue, it's pretty incredible. How the hell did you last so long? And were there points where the business thought, okay, Jim's not going to scale with the business or when you thought, okay, you know, am I going to make it to this next phase here? It is true that a lot of folks view sales leaders as stage appropriate and only viable in certain stages of growth. I hear and see that all the time. I'll say that, and this is one of the reasons why I instantly said yes to Mahmoud when he asked, would I do this podcast? He had my back through the journey across the years and across the stages of growth. Josh Stein from then DFJ now called Threshold, was the same. They supported me. And a few things about it. Number one, winning certainly helps. Actually beating quota on a very regular basis, crushing quota at times really helps as well. That consistent momentum forward, you would think it's unassailable. Actually, it's not because the things that are required to be successful in the next stage tend to be different. Number two, hiring a really good team of lieutenants and I view it as you know, hiring people that are better than myself. We hired Tom Addis out of Salesforce to run enterprise sales at Box. He is 100 times the seller that I am. I hired Leslie Young, who had spent time at MySQL and some other places, including a competitor of Box early on. I hired her to run corporate sales. Her operational chops were so much more well-formed than my own. 
And I learned a ton from her. I often said, shoot, in a parallel universe, I work for Leslie. She doesn't come work for me. Yeah, It's that level of talent that you can bring in that investors and a management team and a board would look at you and say, oh, well, look, this person is really bringing in great people and they're adding. And as a team, they're very complete. The last thing I'll say is having a carve out of some amount of time to focus on the future. You have to have at least a medium term plan. So look, if if you don't tell the board what you're going to do, they're going to go find somebody to tell you what you're going to do. And it's usually by layering you. So yes, there were moments when there was conversation about layering me at Box. There's no doubt about that. But through those experiences, it became clear what I needed to do. I needed to hire people better than myself, and I needed to continue to maintain a great sense of what we're doing next. And that list was actually like 50, 60, 70 things long, and then continue to hit the numbers, obviously. Were you involved in those conversations about layering you? I was very involved in one of the processes. I was aware of a first one, not involved. I was deeply involved in a second one, and I became aware of a third one later after. You're a competitive guy. You're a competitive sales leader. You have pride in your work. You have pride in the team that you hired. I have been there where someone, they've told me, you're too young. You can't build out this team, even though I'd already built out the team. You can't manage the team to where it needs to be. So we're going to hire someone above you. Of course, the competitor in me was so frustrated because I knew just because I hadn't done it, that doesn't mean that I don't have the ability to do it. And lo and behold, a year later, the team was twice the size. They let go of both those functional leaders and asked me to come back to run the whole team. And so it was a bit validating, I guess. But at the time, maybe I just wasn't mature enough to take that lump in a good way. How did you think about it? Look, I felt all the same feelings. And I'll tell you that egoless leadership is next to impossible. Reducing the amount of ego you bring to leadership is possible. You have to look at What's the potential person that would come into Larry? What would they add? What am I going to learn from them? It doesn't take away what I've done. It still is a team that is on the field executing. And shoot, I mean, I got in early. I got the cheap equity and I probably got more of it. So my outcome is fine. No one can take what I did away. It's still mine. I was still there. I was still part of that. So yeah, it would have been hard had it actually realized but I would have made it work, quite frankly. And it's one of those things. Like, how did I create a situation where it didn't happen? I, I just simply said, look, I'll be part of this if that's what it's, is going to happen because you, management team or board is insisting on it. I'll speak my piece interviewing these candidates. And by the way, compare what they say about, again, those diverse, complicated go-to-market motions and you gauge my command of like a medium term roadmap of all of that complexity to these folks who are coming in as potential CROs into this business. Go ahead and compare and do it if you think they've got a better plan than I have. I don't think they do, but you can decide. It's fine. And at the time, did you think you had an advantage? Maybe not because you've done the 100 to 200 million of revenue, but because you understood nuances, complexities, and kind of uniquenesses about the business that someone from the outside looking in just couldn't understand at the depth that you did. 
I firmly believe that. Okay. I want to keep talking about some of this experience and I kind of want to do it in the context of unicorn meat. And I want to explain to the audience what the hell unicorn meat is. So there is a TechCrunch article that you wrote, Jim, and the title, Ever Tasted Grilled Unicorn? Lessons Forged in Hypergrowth Fires. And I read this last night. I was sitting in bed and I probably stayed up till like one or two just rereading this damn thing over and over again. It was one of the most compelling handbooks in such a concise way of how hard it is and the guidebook of what to do in the early days. I absolutely loved it. So kudos to you. And I think it's rare to deliver so much value in so few words. So I want to go through it. I'm going to do a worse job than you of, of being concise here. Yeah. Well, thanks again for the kind words. I'll say this. I actually, because I knew you were going to want to talk about this, I went back and reread it. I probably hadn't read it since I wrote it, quite honestly. And number one, I'm like, wow, that's actually pretty darn good. <laughs> number two, a lot of the themes that are in there are absolutely the foundation of how I think about go-to-market operations, how I think about what I am and what I bring to a company and what I do on a regular basis. Those words in there are literally exactly what I'm doing at Calm today, no doubt about it. It is so good. Can you explain what the premise behind unicorn meat is? Like what you meant by that illustration before I dive into it? Sure. So I got to first give credit to a fellow named Jamie Gretty who was running marketing for me at Infer. That was the, uh, one of the jobs I had after Box. And he wanted to get some sort of playbook stuff. He wanted to prop me up and do some thought leadership and publish some things on LinkedIn and whatnot. So I don't know where I found the image. I was just searching on the internet and found this image called Canned Unicorn Meat. And it was on some site called Think Geek, which I've never visited since. It's just a picture of a unicorn and it's, you know, the primal cuts of a cow or the primal yep. cuts of a pig where they have these like dotted lines. It's like, oh, that's the sirloin. And no, that's the rump roast or whatever. It surrounds a unicorn, which has got the lines for the primal cuts. And it's like dreams and wishes and giggles and magic and sunshine and kisses and love. And, you know, that's what is a unicorn. And I'm like, number one, that's all ridiculous. Number two, I then went and took the exact same image of the primal cuts of the unicorn and just overlaid things like customer inputs and self-disruption and testing and cultural cohesion and A-plus lieutenants, some of the stuff we just talked about relative to Box. And it was a way for me to just encapsulate how I think about what's important when you're trying to build something so big and so complicated. And by the way, doing it very quickly and doing it with competition in the marketplace, et cetera. So if you go to the article, it is still on TechCrunch. You can search on unicorn meat and you will find it. Like I said, I read it again. I'm like, oh, that's a damn good read. It's a damn good read. And <laughs> producers, please put this in the show notes uh, for the audience to go and get. It is an unbelievable handbook. So let's dive into it. And I want to chop up this unicorn here with you. And maybe I'll just start with rattling off all of the different pieces of the unicorn that you divvied out. And then I want to go into each of them. Yep. The first is customer inputs, then self-disruption, dirty fingernails, small doses of structure, cultural cohesion, BHAGs, testing, a Goliath opponent, banter, only A-plus lieutenants, KPIs. So let's go into it. Customer inputs. There's often more to learn in your losses than your wins in the early days of company building. 
you talked about this earlier and I was biting my tongue because I wanted to talk about it in the context of this. When you went to those CIOs and you said, I don't even have a product to sell, you weren't as much a sales rep as you were a product manager at the time. So I don't know, maybe talk about customer inputs a little bit. At a high level, I'll say this also, there's deep beauty in the innovation that happens in this part of the world called Silicon Valley. And there are so many people with iteratively wonderful next ideas for innovation. But that innovation and those ideas are only as good as the marketplace says they're good. The marketplace has to say yes with dollar bills, quite frankly. So what I really like is validating product market fit. And those inputs come from buyers and they will tell you if you ask them open-ended questions, what they really think about what you're hustling. So it is about distilling signals across a multitude of conversations. It's staying very close to the front lines of your sellers, with your sellers, hand in hand on those conversations to learn what people would value and what they don't value, what they would pay to have you build, what they would pay not very much to have you build. I like to channel those feedback points back into everything about how we do messaging frameworks, adoption frameworks, and obviously sales frameworks. So it's about listening to your customers. I think it's the most important thing. It's the best part of sales for me is that they give you all the signals of what you need to do to build a company around a product. Yep. If you just listen to those signals, you have most everything you need to build a successful company. How did you take that data and relay it and communicate it or synthesize it back to the business in an effective way? How did you take all these meetings, put that data somewhere, and then interpret that into something or allow the business to interpret that on your behalf? Very simply, one would keep track of this in a CRM. And I think there's also an element of making sure that the reps are consistently asking the same open-ended questions and making notes and, and using like pick list options in fields in Salesforce. Like, what is it that they're asking for? Why are they saying no to us? What is what feature gaps? Literally asking, what do you think are our feature gaps? The last piece is I would usually find somebody else not in sales to follow up with deal losses two to four weeks after the loss and just say, hey, I'm not in sales. I'm not trying to sell you anything, but I want to gather some feedback for you. And product marketing is good for that task. Yeah. But a lot of folks will say no to that request. But when folks do say yes, there's usually a lot of gold there to go mine. And when you say loss, when you're creating a market, it's not the traditional loss of you lose to another competitor. Do you just mean a loss like, look, guys, not a priority, don't have the time, whatever excuse a buyer might make up. Is that a loss in your mind? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Or the outright no chance. I'm going somewhere else with some, some other vendor. Like, yeah, that all counts. They're not signing on the dotted line and I'm not getting paid commission. That's a loss. I like that <laughs> idea, following up two to four weeks with PM. Okay, I could have an hour show on each of these. And so it hurts <laughs> me to breeze through this in the way that I am, but I'm going to, unfortunately, for time's sake. The second one, self-disruption. If you have ever worked for me, you've probably heard me say this a hundred times. If we're doing things in six months like we're doing them today, we are doomed for failure. Many people are naturally drawn to simplification, process, and repetition, and I'm sure most are good, smart people, and hard workers, but you should actively try to not hire them in an early startup. And I think 
the essence of what this is saying is scale with the company. And I think about this a lot in the sense that one of the biggest challenges of being at a fast growing company is that it's fast growing and that the ground just moves underneath you so quickly. And you have salespeople that come in on the go-to-market side that are myopically focused on one goal. And so often they kind of miss the forest through the trees, if that makes sense. And they're so mission and task oriented. That's what makes them good. And so in a lot of ways, they kind of have to keep reinventing themselves. Their territories are going to change. Comp plans, quotas, bosses, product strategy, all these things. Is that how you meant it? It is how I meant it. Look, your product is evolving at all times. The competitive landscape is evolving at all times. The buyers, they're evolving at all times. And companies and individuals need to be able to improve themselves iteratively, step by step. And, you know, it's not something that comes naturally. It's hard. And, you know, this podcast, Go to Market Grit, grit in the context of building a company around Go to Market is a commitment to constantly improving on the thousand dimensions of improvement that we can actually focus on. That's hard work. For me, grit has to do with perseverance when it's hard and disruption and change and rejiggering this playbook page or this set of qualifying questions versus the thousand other hard things you can do. And I think it's important for sellers actually, you know, they basically by and large need to be told what to do. You need to outline it for them, but they also need to be brought into this process of tuning things, improving things. So that's where there is a particular personality that I'm looking for early in a company and it's flexible and it's creative and it's collaborative and it's very, very okay with testing lots of things. And I'm not trying to hire that type of person late stage. I want a coin operated sales rep later on, but with the company itself and with yourself, we talked about my journey at Box and how I lasted. I spoke about the evolution I went through as a leader and how it became more inspirational and more about believing we can do it as a team together, more like a coach of a literally a sports team. Whereas before it was super duper tactical and like, let's dig in on the thousand things we can be doing right now to improve ourselves a little bit each time. I'll say this, most great companies are built on the thousands and thousands of little steps of improvement, not one big, huge leap forward. Every once in a while, you get a Google or an Amazon that just has it and boom, it's instantly the thing and it's huge. But most companies require so much more hard work, detail work. So yeah, that's self-disruption. And to your point on companies are built on the backs of so many little details. I think great sales reps are actually built on that same premise. And the idea is like the great reps, you don't see 98% of what actually makes them great because they're constantly paying attention to details in the background that others aren't and improving those details and refining that process. And so I think it's it's analogous to what makes a great company is, is similar to what might make a great sales rep in the, in the go-to-market motion. Let me riff on that a bit and again, connect it back to the theme of this podcast, which is grit. For me, grit in sales, the finest expression of grit is walking into objections, actively asking questions to find who's not into this and why. And again, the signaling from those people, those are the no's that are out there walking into that uncomfortable situation. It's hard, but then the signaling you take out of it gives you the thousand points of iteration that you might consider doing to improve your business. And the best salespeople 
are the ones who are able to take those feedback points and go back into the organization and get things tweaked and tuned so that those objections can be attended to. Yeah. Walking into objections is my view of sales grit, period. I agree. Yesterday, I had a conversation with one of our CEOs, and they're trying to close their first sets of customers. And he's talking to me about this big pipeline that they have and how he has these incredible relationships with all these buyers at all these companies. And I started looking at the logos, and I thought, these people have been in this pipeline for a very long time. So I said, are you making friends with them or are you trying to get a deal done? Because if you're trying to get a deal done, go ask them why you can't get that deal done. Go get to know quickly. You're just sitting in la-la land here making friends, but you're not actually getting meaningful feedback and you're certainly not gonna get a deal done. You just feel good about spinning around the same 20 opportunities, which then builds complacency for you not to go fill the top of the funnel. If you actually inspected your own pipeline and inspection happens through the process of getting to know the customer telling you why it's not gonna work, then all of a sudden you're gonna be left with three or four real deals and you're gonna feel the sense of urgency to go fill the top of funnel and find the next five diamonds in the rough that are actually a good fit. Absolutely. Yeah, there are people who are better at that than I am, for sure. And that inspection of the pipeline, that hardcore assessment of what's really going on in that opportunity with energy and a focus on accountability. There are people who are better at that than me, hands down. I have no problem admitting it, but it's really important to have somebody who's good at that inside of your sales organization, hopefully in some sort of manager, director, VP, whatever role. A hundred percent. And I think it's especially hard for technical founders because they're not salespeople. They're not conditioned that way. And this product is their pride and joy. And so that's why you hire someone in sales who's a bit disassociated from the emotional state of what you're building. And is actually just myopically focused on getting it across the finish line. Indeed. Got to get paid, brother. Exactly. 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 (laughs) Okay. Dirty fingernails. Lead from the front is good advice. Join calls with frontline folks. Don't skip one-on-ones. Attend ad hoc team gatherings. Play some pranks on people. Provide deep and detailed feedback on that Google Doc someone shared with you. Answer your emails quickly. Go close a deal. Go make a cold call. Hit LinkedIn to find a referral for someone else in your company. I could go on and on. So I'll pause there. What did you mean by that in reference to dirty fingernails? Well, look, it's just especially early stage, nothing's off limits. You are the jack of all trades. You might be wearing a sales hat, but it could be a product hat this hour. It could be a marketing hat next hour. It could be something collaborative across into engineering or into the product team. Right now, what I'm doing at Calm, we're building a B2B business inside of a very successful existing consumer play. It's a small team. You know, There's not much hierarchy. I'm involved in all kinds of dimensions with my people figuring things out and doing things. A couple of weeks ago, I was working with my sales ops person, tweaking opportunities in Salesforce to be consistent. I'll do that. I don't care. It needs to get done. And I don't want to ask Jack to have to do all that stuff himself. So yeah, I'll put eight hours into tweaking freaking opportunities in Salesforce so that they all look and act the same compared to the actual contracts. It's just a willingness to do that kind of stuff. And when your team sees you as one of them, that's actually leadership. It's not that you have a team. And I I say this in the article, it's that they see you as their leader. I'll give you a corollary. How do you know as a leader when to promote somebody from within versus hire from the outside? The question that everybody faces. 
ask people around that individual that might be viable for internal promotion. They will tell you who they trust the most. They will tell you who acts as their internal team lead without even having that moniker or that designation. People will nominate the right one in the group if you just ask them. And if you don't get the signals that anybody fits that profile of, they're actually the person that I go to for advice or for help, then hire from the outside. Yeah. But the people around them will tell you what needs to happen. Small doses of structure. Trying to put playbook-derived endgame structures in place too early does not allow for iteration. Without step-by-step iteration, you might lose the ability to read where or why or how something went sideways. Your team's spider sense of being handed too much change will activate. Keep your playbook on the side for occasional reference only. Yeah. We haven't talked much about what I did with consulting for nearly five years, but there was always the temptation to tell stories about what happened in Box or, oh, I solved that problem this way at Box. The best part about consulting for me was I was able to just deeply immerse myself in what was in front of me with that particular business, that buyer, this product, and the signals. Contextually inventing what's appropriate for that situation is way more fun than saying, oh, this is how I did it before. So playbook stuff is great. You know, We're trying to build sales repeatability at the end of the day, and we're trying to build efficiency and how we squeeze maximum dollars out of every single opportunity. But early on, again, and I view myself as being super duper happy when I'm working with small companies, early stage. That's how I see myself, but I don't use playbooks. I want to have things be fluid and I want to test and see what works. And it's funny in consulting, I interviewed probably 50 to 60 CRO candidates for various roles we were trying to fill in my consulting clients, companies. And it's funny how some of them come to interviews with literally their printed playbooks. And then I instantly know, not it, no chance. Are you going to be able to take that thing and make it work here? Zero chance. Put your playbook away and tell me how you're going to grow this thing in such a different conversation. So yeah, playbooks are important, but they can actually be something of a joke and way too rigid and not flexible enough to actually iterate at all. Cultural cohesion. Winning and success helps a lot. But so does having simple and clear company-level cultural caveats that provide a North Star for ethics, behavior, and effort. Making these statements public and invoking them with regularity makes them stick. If teams define their own cultural islands, it will be hard to align everyone's efforts. So when I heard this, it's funny. I always thought cultural cohesion and maybe my interpretation of it, which is values, company values, were stupid. I always thought that. And when I joined Kleiner... My North Star was not as clearly defined as it's ever been before because Mm -hmm. I didn't have a number or a quota. And so I found myself reverting back to what are the things that are really important for me to do as I make decisions in my process and what are the things that I'm going to be measured against? And so, you know, operating in real times, I find myself subconsciously almost reverting back to those things because I know that those are the things that we've defined as very important as a firm, as values that we want to embody and project outwards. Yeah, I'm with you. I've long been suspicious of, it's not that I'm suspicious of cultural caveats being stated and invoked. 
I get worried when there's rigidity to them, when they're not able to evolve. Again, stages of growth, things become different. You're hiring people from different backgrounds, different experiences. I like to think that culture is something that can evolve because culture is organically created by the group, the team. I would also like to say that a company mission or a company vision, which is an external thing, what are we doing for the world? That's something that shouldn't change. I'll again, invoke Calm, where I work right now. I've never been affiliated with an organization that has such clarity about what we're trying to do for the world, make it happier and healthier. That is what we are trying to do with this app, with this content, with what I'm trying to do on B2B. And I can't begin to describe the depth of meaning it has for everybody that works in the company. And it's amazing. And actually, think of this, like when you have a B2C play that is as successful as Calm, like app of the year on the Apple App Store and already a unicorn. And then we try to bring in B2B imperatives. That's really hard. Mm -hmm. But the North Star of the mission of the company, make the world happier and healthier, it actually really means something inside that business. So cultural caveats are insular statements about ourselves. The mission needs to be external. Both are important. The former needs to evolve. The latter should be pretty clear and static. Love that. BHAGs, big, hairy, audacious goals. I've heard that A used in different ways as well. Parentheses, Aaron Levy. (laughs) (laughs) How do you climb Mount Everest? One foot in front of the other, one step at a time. Keep at it and you will get to the top. Or not, such as life, try again. It's okay (laughs) to talk about BHAGs in terms of faith and belief. And I actually found this to be increasingly effective as my teams got into the hundreds. That said, calling out the smaller wins and letting people feel good about them is the best way to instill confidence in your team early on. Celebrate the little victories. And there was a preface to that note, which basically talked about, as you just alluded to, Aaron loved BHAGs. You and Aaron would close 10 million of ARR in a year, and you talk about the billion dollars that was coming in ARR. So I'll just pause there and get your thoughts on BHAGs. Yeah, sure. Aaron was very good at it. And as a salesperson, you have a quota and you're trying to get to that quota and surpass that quota. It's hard. And there were times when we surpassed quota on day number you know, 22 of the month. And then it's like, what do you do then? Oh, well, you know, we're not trying to get 150,000. We're trying to get 190. So it was always ratcheting things up. And you know, the negotiation between myself and Dylan, who ran finance at Box, about what the annual model is going to be. He and I would work on it. It'd be beautifully input driven. It'd be rational, all dimensions. It'd be comprehensive as heck. And then we'd hand it to Aaron. And he's like, nope, add 30 million. Like, ah, drive me crazy. But honestly, I needed to be pushed that way. I needed to be forced into thinking that something bigger was possible. And then holy moly, it actually was. So I'm definitely like A to B person. I'm very list driven, tactically viable. Aaron's a big thinker and he thinks bigger than I naturally think. Again, the complementarity of that, you define point Z, I'll get you there eventually. I'm not one to say, oh, point Z, let's go there. Like I'm A to B, but yes, we've talked about this before, the thousand dimensions of iteration and celebrating little victories, shoot in sales. One of the hardest things to do because the quota resets to zero at the turn of the period and that cycle of stress and then just that moment of relief and then reset to zero. That's hard. Yep. 
So you've got to pat people on the back every once in a while. And you have to learn how to pat yourself on the back every once in a while too. let yourself feel good about what you're doing. Because oftentimes it's never, ever enough for someone else. I agree. And look, the Spihags thing, because things change so quickly and it's very dynamic, you have lightning in a bottle for a very brief period in time. And when you have that, you got to hit the gas sometimes. Sam Blonde, one of my guests, who is the CRO of Brex and formerly from Zenefits, he told the story about him and Parker back in the day at Zenefits. The number was, you know, 15 mil. I'm just making up numbers. They would do 25 mil by October and they'd look at each other and say, can we get to 40? And there's something there where it pushes you to think bigger. And really the idea behind it is we have a window right now to go take advantage of. Can we do it? Let's try and do it. Let's throw out all the norms, quotas, all those things. We'll figure that out. Let's just trust each other and try and drive towards this, this BHAG. Yeah, absolutely. No, I mean, and, and just to close, we did talk about being a billion dollar company in 2008 at Box, no lie. And maybe I was silly enough or dumb enough to not know how hard it was going to be, but we had a date on it too. I had a model, of course, I had a model, I had a prediction. And, you know, I think they're still going to get there, quite honestly. They're not there yet, but I think they're well on their way. That's incredible. Testing. You're not as smart as you think you are. Sorry, but it's true for all of us. Trying to diversify your go-to-market strategy, I suggest hiring a team of two to make an initial foray and asking them to tell you what is and is not working, arguing with your product-centric CEO about the viability of a new feature, run the idea by some customers. Wondering if your sign-up form can produce the same number of leads if you add another field? Your answer is an A-B test. Let the machines learn for you and let the data speak. Nothing beats having objective, data-derived truth versus hunch-based arguments that never end. So there's a crap ton of variables that go on in our world. And I think what you're saying is trying to eliminate some of those variables. I love the higher two reps, not one, because you're eliminating the variable of is it the person or is it something else? So yeah, maybe you could talk about that for a sec. I couldn't have said it better. <laughs> this is my reaction to that. <laughs> and I love data. I don't need a 95% confidence interval to make business decisions. I'm generally comfortable with like 65 to 75% confidence interval to actually pivot, make a change, invest a dollar, whatever it is, hire a person. It's okay to not get it right. But I've had plenty of hunch-based arguments with plenty of CEOs in my life. And I'd rather let the marketplace speak. And again, it's how do you distill data? How do you capture the data, distill the data, read signals across a swath of conversations? You have to be able to do that. And if you can do it well, the market will tell you what you need to do, generally speaking, if you just, in a structured way, go find it out. Yep, absolutely. And I know I'm bumping up. Could I have an extra five minutes over the hour? Is that fair? I know you hate me for asking. Uh, <laughs> uh, I could get back on at another point today, but okay. the external interview. So I, I don't want to do that too. Okay, that's fair. All right, let's keep moving then. A Goliath opponent. The value of this approach is that buyers will have a frame of reference to better understand what you intend to be when you grow up. They may say you are nowhere close to delivering what Goliath can, but rapid innovation and agile engineering, relentless features releases are hard to ignore, especially if you're charging pennies on the Goliath dollar. Was G Drive your Goliath at the time? Microsoft SharePoint, so much fun, poking a stick in that beast. We had an answer for mobility that they didn't have. It was very clearly understood. When the iPad came out on March 24th, 2010, I will remember the day forever, changed my life, made Box 
instantly the thing to have. We opened up your file system on your iPad and it got us into selling to senior people inside of companies as well. But it was SharePoint that we were disrupting. And that system, which was so widely used and pervasive in the enterprise, was locked behind a firewall. And it was very difficult to open it up to external parties. We have something in the cloud. Our value was abundantly clear to our potential buyers. And you know, there were security considerations, of course, but we had something that SharePoint did not have. We had two things, actually. We're open in the cloud and we're on the iPad. Again, Aaron Levy, genius, had an app for Box on day number one in the App Store when the iPad was released. I was suspicious, like, what is this iPad thing? But he had the foresight to put that app in there and it changed our trajectory at Box with the enterprise. Did you think it helped the team focus? Did you think in a weird way it gave the team something to look against and say, competitive people like to compete. And there's only so much to be said about competing with yourself. Sometimes it's nice to have someone in the swim lane next to you. Absolutely. There's no doubt about it. We have that at calm. We know who it is. They have a name and I'm here to put them out of business. I mean, that's how I think about it. I'm here to win. Let your team try stuff that comes out of the banter. I promise some of their crazy ideas will work. Most importantly, stay really close to that banter yourself. Hierarchy counts for very little or next to nothing. While you are in the early days of figuring things out, people need to have a voice and be heard. And I think the essence of what you were saying was in the context of you want to be in the sales office. You want to be with your team. You want to be one with the team. You want to get your hands dirty to your earlier point. You want your fingernails to be dirty, right? And so, I don't know, maybe you could talk more about banter. I mean, the first thing that pops into my head is the new world order of Zoom and how we're doing things today compared to before. The place this comes from is I had a early group of very energized, very smart, very interactive salespeople that I hired into the team early at Box. And they all lived in the city. They commuted together, four or five of them, a couple of hours a day together in the car just riffing on stuff. And then they would come to the office and they would do the exact same thing. They would just go back and forth on various topics. They'd get on the phones and pretend they were the boss person to sell certain angles of this or that. It was just a highly energized, very vibrant, very diverse, ongoing set of conversations that were had about anything and everything relative to sales and box and the product and marketing and then everything. And I called it the banter. It was an organic thing that I didn't have to prompt. It just happened every single day. And it was probably one of the most memorable things in terms of how I reflect about growing up at Box myself. And, you know, I tried to be a part of that and I wanted to be a part of it and I wanted new hires to be a part of it. And I think about it right now and it's exactly the thing I'm trying to get happening with the teams that I build inside of small companies. And that's how a lot of stuff gets figured out. It's ideas and it's trying, and then it's reporting back to the group. So it's just a lot of fun. Me and you talking about stuff today on this podcast. I love talking about business and I like unraveling what's in front of me, which, you know, oftentimes is go to market oriented. So it's just the thing that I'm looking for people to be able to contribute on when I'm hiring them. If you can't carry a really vibrant, organic business conversation with me in an interview, you're not going to get hired. 
But if you can, you're in. And in, in, by the way, you got to tell me you're going to bust your tail and work really hard and do everything possible to make the company successful first and yourself successful second. Those things mean a lot too. But you got to be able to immerse yourself in what's in front of you and contribute to building the business. It's a team thing and nobody's got the silver bullet, the golden answers. It's figured out as a group. Tell me if this is what you were thinking or is even closely related to what you're saying, but Carlos De La Torre, the CRO of Trip Actions, who we had on the show, he talks about culture ebbing up and down. And what he means by that is, look, at the beginning, there's going to be times where we put POC processes into place. We put rigors around success criteria and all these things. But at some point, you hire the right people to let culture ebb up. And culture might be, in some cases, literal banter and culture and team and camaraderie. It could also be processes and things that come out just like sparks of ideas that yeah. then get created in the car rides going to and from the office that you're like, huh, that's worked. These guys are, gals are on to something. Look, it worked for me. It's going to work for you. You try it too. See if it works for you. That back and forth, that ebb and flow, so to speak. Yeah, I'll, I'll agree. There's nothing worse than feeling like as a person selling that you're doing this alone. It's too hard. There's too much failure. But if you can attack this as a team, such a better way to get all the energy out of people. Yeah. They just have so much more to give because people are social creatures and and they want to dig in. And, and that's the motivation. That's the spark. That's the magic. That's what we're all trying to get. Yeah. So, yeah, I'll buy into what Carlos is saying. Okay, fair enough. Do you think that you're missing that? Can you recreate banter when you're not in the office with people? Yes, you can. It's harder. It means more time online. What used to be the kicking it around at the office with the people is now probably too many Zoom meetings. And it's hard to say. I haven't really thought about it. I, I suspect that there's probably elements of it that are missing. I think it probably happens maybe more formally as a group, but you know, in one-on-ones, I think a lot of stuff happens now, maybe mm-hmm. more so. I think also in one-on-ones, actually, people want to talk about their personal issues around isolation and they want to kill their roommates. And Well, and their bedrooms in the back of the frame. So it becomes a lot easier to have that conversation. Yeah, for sure. But no, I think, again, if you profile for the right personality type for early stage action, people are just going to find ways to interact with each other regardless. I know that you know, at Calm, the folks who live up in the city They've been doing social distance dinners and they take walks together, like social distance walks around the neighborhood. Several of them live near each other. So if you have the right people who are inclined in that collaborative direction, they're going to find ways to do it. Yep. Period. So the banter is it's not something you necessarily manage. It's something that you want to have happen. And you're hiring people who are inclined to do it, not literally seeding it or prompting it or insisting on it. It just happens. Only A-plus lieutenants. The last thing I want to do is run out of time on this session as well. (laughs) Only A-plus lieutenants. Hiring people who are smarter and more experienced than you requires a rare lack of ego. Concern for title layering or fair compensation is just distracting noise. It's pure magic to bring in people with different but complementary skills and personality traits from your own. You will learn a ton from them. They will deliver and your life will get easier because delegation is way more viable. Plus, they will make you look great in the eyes of your CEO and board. All you need to do is hire the best and shine a bright light on the hard work and achievements of your own awesome team. This is probably, in my mind, the most important point that you made. Yeah. 
And as you're reading these things, I actually have the article up on my screen. So I'm like, all you need to do is hire the best as if it's that easy. <laughs> and hiring is art, not science. Uh, hiring involves a lot of misstarts and, you know, honestly, failure. But I'll just say this. This is one of the elements that I was held accountable to at Box as part of my journey. And it was made abundantly clear that if I didn't hire people that were rock stars and that everybody believed were going to be super duper effective and complementary to what I, what I have, which is probably more an operator's mindset, you know, a builder's mindset, I don't gain energy from the deals. I actually don't particularly like the tension of negotiation. I don't like the obfuscation that happens from potential buyers about shading the truth about what's actually happening on their side. Like all of that is tough stuff for me personally. So I got to hire people who thrive on that stuff. And those folks are out there. It's worth having a process of vetting that is deep and comprehensive and includes a bunch of steps and includes presentations and includes people with senior roles outside of sales assessing who you're talking to and who you're thinking about moving forward with. So from standing up the calibration on the front end of hiring to the process that you run, the debriefs on every candidate, the write-ups you force in greenhouse, there's so many things you do to try to make sure you're raising the bar with every hire. It is hard. It is yeah. super hard at scale when you're being asked to hire 15, 20 reps a month. The stakes are higher with your lieutenant sphere. You've got to be able to trust these folks to go get the job done, ferret out fake deals, ferret out the stuff that's not going to happen or is going to come in and happen differently than we expect or anticipate. But I named some names earlier on about folks I brought into Box. Those are just two of many that I had the luxury of being able to hire and that I learned so much from. They put me personally in a profoundly different place in my own career. And that was one of the very, 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 very best things that I got to do at Box is hire the team up and down, up and down the org, hire that team and work with them. And they made me look good, honestly. Zero to 200 million or whatever it was, 700,000 to 200 million in ARR. I personally closed as in I ran the deal. I'm going to say somewhere between 10 and 20 million of that. The rest is them. Yep. I don't even know if that's the right numbers, but they did all the deals. What percentage of, and this is just give me a ballpark, of your A-plus lieutenants were promoted from within versus hired from the outside? The folks we were hiring at Box early were fairly junior. This was an inside sales thing, average deal size relatively low. As we got into enterprise class deals, bigger stuff, we hired folks with more experience. I would say that there was a good amount of promotion to the middle layers of sales management, manager, director level people. And I'm going to say it was not half, but maybe 30 or 40%, something like that. Mm -hmm. And then in terms of my direct reports, all of them came from the outside. Interesting. All of them. I hired a very senior sales ops person who had spent a lot of time at Informatica. Hey, Dave, how you doing? Hired out of Salesforce, hired out of a bunch of different places, but it was folks who had more sales experience than me, quite honestly. Yeah. For that, I'm just thinking about the end and the core team. You know, there's six or seven of us around the table. 
yeah plowing through pipeline forecasting on every friday that was the group now that you've already done it and you're doing it for all intents and purposes again and in a different form and i want to talk about that in a little bit but would you now that you have seen that and you're a 200 million dollar guy or whatever right is your risk appetite higher to bring in someone that doesn't necessarily make you better or is it more experienced than you? Because there's just not many folks that have that and maybe have your directs be up a little bit more. It's something I'm actively kind of always thinking about yeah, and chewing on and pressures from above generally are more leaning toward higher seniority from the outside. And because of my own journey, I'm captivated with finding people that I can groom, that I can support, that I can mentor, not just right now or in work experience, but over the long haul, over their careers. So maybe it's over a longer period of time that I'll be able to really do that with people. Mm -hmm. I need to de-risk the business. I need to create leverage for myself. I can't have that many direct reports. I'm in a moment of truth where I have enough direct reports. Like if you add in a couple more, it's getting to be too many direct reports. You're gonna have to do something about that. So was interesting to think about and you want to find the best hire the best and give them as much rope as possible and let's find what that ceiling is and i will say this i've hired some phenomenal people at calm phenomenal contributors all i'm just going to say is i'm super excited i, I feel much gratitude about the team that i've been able to draw in at, at calm and we've got a big job ahead but i'm in love with the team i'm putting on the field KPIs, last one. There's a certain beauty in the rigor of data. Trend analysis of true. Trend analysis of crucial and very key performance indicators is an acquired skill that's one of the most important traits of a unicorn operator. Establish your KPIs early and instrument your systems to track activity, attribution, and results. Automate as much as you can, as early as you can. This is why it's important to hire a sales and marketing operations team early. Jim, go ahead. Most companies don't want to do that. Invest in sales ops and marketing ops early. As a consultant, I feel good about being able to like bring these things into effect with a lot of my clients. Let's build the capability to get the data. Let's look at the trend data over time against targets. Show me a line that goes up and down, like number of leads or number of sales created opportunities. In a vacuum, those numbers, those ups and downs don't mean anything unless they're cut against the target, against the revenue model where we can go and look at why. Are those numbers trending the way they are relative to the target? And what the heck are we going to do about it from a business perspective? It's not that I've got an insight that the number went up or the number went down. It's what the heck are we going to do about it? And that's where most of my insights about next steps comes from, right? It's from the field, from the marketplace, those signals plus the data signals. Those are the two key things that you have to play with. And just remember the board deck that Mamoon would see every single month at Box for six and a half years, whatever it was, the last slide was always the exact same slide from board meeting number one to the very last one I did every single month was my KPI slide. And I added additional KPIs along the way, but it was the same darn stats cut by segment over time. And it got to be this like micro, micro, micro tiny font to fit it all in with a link that they could just click and go play. But yeah, I mean, I'm nerdy with my data. I'm darn serious about the data. And you got to get this stuff right early because if you don't, you can definitely waste time, waste money, go sideways, lose market opportunity. Like you don't want to do that. So 
As for unicorn operator, I'll TM it right now. It's mine. Perfect. It's right there in that article I'm looking at. My article, I wrote it, so. Damn it, unicorn meat. What a hell of an article. I'm so glad I stumbled upon it and force your feet to the fire to make sure we review it. Anybody that's listening, it will be in the show notes. Read it. It is so good. Okay, in the last five minutes, I want to talk about your role at Calm. Today, it's more of a COO type role. Tell me if I'm wrong. Calm is traditionally a B2C consumer product. Yours truly, Jubin, uses it almost every day. The minute I stopped using it was the minute I stopped meditating. That was a mistake. And I think it's an incredible thing that you're doing is the reason that they brought Jim on board to do exactly what you did at Box, which is take it from a B2C company to a B2B company. It is true. I think there's going to be an inherent persistent blend of contribution from the consumer subscribers and the B2B companies, employers that we bring on as clients, you know, we want to grow both extremely fast. So am I doing something similar? Yeah, sure. Help build the strategy for how we're going to attack the employer marketplace, how to reconcile health plans, how to reconcile brand partnerships we can do to get into lives, covered lives as fast as possible. The thing we all believe at Calm right now is this is true before COVID. It's more true during COVID. The world needs more Calm. The world has a lot going on right now. And we know from five, seven years of developing this content that this does have a very positive impact on people's lives. And if you go to the, the app reviews you can see in the app stores and read some of those stories about what we are actually helping them with, saving lives, legit. Those stories are the thing that power us, that make us believe that Everybody in the world should have a crack at this. And there's a lot of diversity in the content, I will say. It's way beyond meditation. There's sleep warriors, there's body calm, there's a lot of music. There's a lot of artists who actually launch music on calm exclusively first. And we're doing more and more of that. It's kind of funny. There's this dude who read a sleep store named Harry Styles. I'd never even heard of this guy until like a month and a half ago, until he like broke our internet with viral. Harry Styles read a, a bedtime story? Yeah, he, he does a sleep story called Dream With Me and turned the internet upside down. And I had no clue who this dude was. I'd never heard the name in my life. Oh, Jim, you got to get out more. <laughs> Too busy closing deals, right? No, but look, at Calm, I'm general manager of B2B. They hired me as a consultant about a year ago. I worked with a wonderful woman in support attending to like inbound queries coming through Zendesk, actually. There was no other way for people to express inbound interest. So worked with her to close some deals, really got a sense of the diversity of the pipeline, big deals, small deals, companies of all types, all geos. Holy moly, there is something here. And in consulting over you know four and a half, nearly five years, it is true that pretty much every client I had tried to hire me as their CRO. And I respectfully declined each and every time. And then I got to the point where I was telling my clients in advance, right when they hired me, don't try to hire me because I'm not going to say yes, because I love what I do with consulting. It keeps me early stage. It's fun. I have big effect. And by the way, I have more balance. I have more time to do my hobbies and be with my family. So it's great. And then the pipeline revealed itself. The wonderful people that I was working with at Calm were like, oh, and one thing I've learned over the years, never say never. Do not speak in absolutes. Things change. And though I thought I was never going to want to join a company again, because consulting was going so well and I didn't have to work at getting clients at all. It was terrific. But then it was like, wow, with Calm, it's so apparent what needs to happen. I've got this. 
this opportunity in front of me, this is one to lean into. So they didn't ask me, I asked them, I said, would you please try to hire me? Cause I'll probably say yes. And I surprised myself that way. And I'm really glad I did. So I'm part of that mission. It's a great product. We are on top of some pretty radical immediate success on the revenue side with what we're doing. And I've got a great team that's growing. So reach out if you're awesome. For those that are listening that are awesome, what are you hiring for? We're hiring in marketing. We're hiring salespeople. We're hiring sales dev. We're hiring account managers. I've got sales ops sorts of things. I got a project manager role I'm looking to hire. Yeah. So the team's gone from three in January to we're in the high teens now. And we're going to be like at 28-ish end of the year. We've done super well through this year. And we feel good that we're able to help the world a little bit through the crazy. And it's not about the money. It's not about the deals. It's about, goodness gracious, we live in a crazy world. And if we can help you be happier and healthier, we're in. Talk to us. Well, that's a good place to wrap. Jim, thank you. Maybe you could make me a promise here that in about a year, when you take calm from wherever you do to wherever you do, we can do another session and it's all about calm, if that's okay with you. If someone wants to get a hold of you, how should they? They want to work for you. They want to work at Calm, whatever it might be. They listen to this episode. LinkedIn, Jim Herbold. Jim, there I am. thank you so, so, so much. I appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you folks for tuning in to learn from our amazing guest and for indulging me as the rambling host. I hope you enjoyed today's show. If you'd like to get in touch or keep up with the pod, please follow me on Twitter at Jubin Mir or shoot us an email gtmg at kleinerperkins.com. If you liked what you heard and want to hear more, please support the show by subscribing on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you use to listen. Thank you, and I will see you next time.